Uh, we have been taking a look uh, at uh, the book of Acts, uh, and particularly the way that we see uh, preaching and, and these sort of longer discourses on uh, the life of, of Jesus and, and how he fulfills the scriptures. That's sort of one of the central things that we see taking place whenever someone stands up to preach uh, in the book of Acts. You see this sort of common theme where, where these portions of scripture, they'll be weaved together to actually show how Jesus somehow strangely, mysteriously, unexpectedly has fulfilled all of God's promises in his life his death, and his resurrection. And that's something that that we see taking place in in our reading from Acts chapter 7 today. Uh, This sermon is is from a guy by the name of of Stephen. Um, Now you may know Stephen was not one of sort of the the original 12 apostles. Uh, He comes up not until actually Acts chapter 6. And what Stephen is, is he is one of these men who has been appointed to basically be an assistant to the apostles. The the 12 apostles who have been appointed to to teach and be founders of God's church, they find that there's all this other work that needs to be done. That there's tables that need to be waited on. There's people in need that need to be cared for. (laughs) And and the apostles, they begin to realize, like, we can't do this all on ourselves. Jesus gave us this particular task, and we need to do that task. So we're going to need some help. And so what the church does is they bring forth men to serve as as deacons, as as servants, as assistants to the apostles. To basically, to to do the work maybe the apostles don't want to do. Or to to do the work that that sometimes the apostles don't have time to do. And so this man, Stephen, he comes forward and and he's appointed as a a deacon in the church, as, as a servant, and they lay hands on him, sort of ordaining him, setting him apart for this work in God's church. And we're then told after this in in Acts chapter 6 that Stephen, he actually begins to perform these mighty works, the same works the apostles are doing. These signs and these wonders, they're they're being done through him. And the Jewish people, those who do not accept that Jesus is the Christ, they see this, they hear him preaching and speaking, and they say, we can have none of that. And so they capture him, they seize him, and here, as Stephen speaks, he is on trial. He is on trial, being tried for the things that he's doing, the things that he's teaching, and his life is at stake. So if for Stephen there was ever a time for him to sort of shrink back from his insistence that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the fulfillment of scriptures, it was now. But he doesn't do that at all. And in fact, as he stands up to speak before the Jewish leaders who are trying him, what he has to say grows particularly pointed and he aims it squarely at those who are trying him here. And he talks about the way that the story of Israel has always been this story of rejection. Before what we read this morning in in the first eight verses of Acts chapter 7, Stephen talks about the way that even Abraham was rejected. How Abraham was sent to go and settle in the promised land that God had given him, but he was rejected by the residents there. And then he flashes forward to, to Joseph. You remember Joseph, he was one of Jacob's 12 sons. 
And he was Jacob's favorite son. And he was rejected by his brothers. But though he was rejected, he was appointed by God to be the one that would rescue his people and bring them to Egypt so that they wouldn't starve to death during the famine and they would survive there. And he jumps forward to Moses. And he talks about how Moses wasn't just rejected by Egypt as he was appointed as God's servant, but he was rejected by his own people. We saw it take place before he flees to Midian that he sees these two Hebrew men fighting with one another and he says, hey, what are you doing? Why are you hurting one another? You're brothers. And they look at him they say, who appointed you as ruler and judge over us? Right? And it's then their words, are you going to do to us what you did to the Egyptian that Moses had, had killed just a few chapters before? Actually, just a few verses before. It's at that that Moses flees to Midian, but it's there as he's tending sheep in Midian that God appears to him. And God appears to him then in the burning bush. And and this is where we pick up. In Acts chapter 7, verse 35, Stephen says to those who are trying him, he says, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received the living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. In their hearts, they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol And were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Raphan, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So Stephen speaks as he's on trial here. He talks about the way that even Moses, right, the foremost of God's servants and prophets, the one through whom the Torah came, right? Moses was Israel's ruler and redeemer. He was the one God himself sent to rescue them out of Egypt. Right? This is the central story for Israel's self-conception and identity. That we are the people God rescued by His own hand out of Egypt. And He did that through Moses. And God did mighty works through this servant Moses. And He promised that one day He would raise up another servant, another prophet, just like Him. 
Steve, it talks about the way that God spoke face to face with Moses. How God handed his people the Torah on Mount Sinai through Moses. All of these things that took place through the servant Moses. And you know what still happened? Israel still rejected him. They still turned in their hearts back to Egypt, longing for what once was. Longing for their slavery. And they said to Aaron, make for us gods. Even though God did all these incredible things through Moses, Israel still rejected him. Because that's kind of what they've always done. They did it to Moses. They did it to the prophets. They did it to all of God's servants until it comes around to finally they do the same thing to whom? To Jesus. To God's own Son. And so Stephen says in verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who did not keep the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Jesus, God's own son, he came to the people of Israel. He came just like Moses did. Just like the prophets did. And he got the same treatment. They rejected him. They killed him. They wanted nothing to do with him because that is what Israel has always done, Stephen says. Not exactly a a great way to garner favor with those who hold your life in their hands, is it? But you know, I find that to be this incredibly strange truth, don't don't you? That Israel, God's people, continually rejects God's servants and prophets. Isn't that odd? That God's people would reject God's servants. How is that possible? Wouldn't you expect, actually, the opposite to be true? That it would be God's people who welcome God's servants. How is this possible? Why would that be possible? But I actually want to take a moment to compare Peter, or excuse me, Stephen's speech here as he is on trial to one of Jesus' parables. It's the parable we read this morning from Matthew chapter 1, the parable of the tenants. And you might notice that there's a lot of similarities between what Stephen says and what Jesus teaches in this parable. In fact, one might even argue that what Stephen is doing is he is basically just giving exposition on this parable. That he has taken the parable of the tenants and he has then associated it with Moses, with the prophets, and what Israel has always done. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same 
to them. So if we compare this to Stephen's sermon, Stephen's speech, while he is on trial here, we might very quickly recognize who are the tenants. The tenants are, are the people of Israel, the people that have been entrusted this wine press, this field that the master has given to them to care for. And the prophets then are those servants God has sent to get the fruit that he desires his people would bring forth. And what do the servants do? What do the tenants do as these servants come forward? They reject them. They beat them. They kill them. They stone them. They persecute them in many ways. And then God sends more servants, more prophets to get the fruit God longs for and they do the same again until finally the master, that is God, does this. Finally he sent his son to them saying they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son they said to themselves this is the heir. Come let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The master sends his son. And how do the tenants respond? Let us kill him so that we may have his inheritance. You see, here is what is taking place in that parable. Here is what is taking place in Stephen's speech, is that they, that is the people of Israel, they want the inheritance, they want the vineyard for themselves on their own terms. They don't want to work it and serve it on God's terms, on the Master's terms, they want it on their own terms. And so anytime God would send servants, prophets, to bring forth the fruit that God desires, they reject them. Because they don't want to do things on God's terms. They don't want to inherit the promised land on God's terms. They don't want to be this great nation on God's terms. They want it on their own terms. And so anytime a prophet comes and rebukes them, anytime someone is sent to call them to repentance, they say, no thank you. They reject them, they beat them, they mock them, they kill them. Because they don't want the vineyard on their own terms. They want it, excuse me, they don't want it on God's terms. They want it on their own. And, and, and here's the reality that, that I've come to, to learn about myself. Is that I often do the same thing. I think all of us, we, we often do the same thing. Uh, in the sort of mid-1900s, uh, there was a, a literary and, and religion critic uh, by the name of, of Joseph Campbell. You've, you've maybe heard the name. Uh, he is famous for, uh, for the book called uh, The Hero of a Thousand Faces and, and is the founder of what's often considered the monomyth. And it's just basically this idea, this literary theory that every great story and every great hero is just sort of a retelling of the same story over and over again. And and one of the things that that I think is interesting is is just the way that Joseph Campbell, I think, has captured what is often our our human hearts and human experience. You've maybe heard these words before. It says, follow your bliss. If you do follow your bliss, you put yourself on a kind of track that has been there all the while waiting for you. 
And the life you ought to be living is the one you are living. When you can see that, you begin to meet people who are in the field of your bliss and they open the doors to you. I say, follow your bliss and don't be afraid and doors will open where you didn't know they were going to be. If you follow your bliss, doors will open for you that wouldn't have opened for anyone else. Right? Follow your bliss. Do the thing that you want to do and don't listen to anyone who says otherwise. Now, now maybe in, in a certain sense, if we understand it rightly, there, there's something to be garnered from this. That, that maybe when it comes to sort of choosing, okay, what do I want to do for my career? What do I want to spend my life and my time doing? That there's some wisdom there. Maybe you should try doing something you actually like. I probably wouldn't make a very good pastor if I hated everything about being a pastor. But I think if, if we follow this to sort of its logical conclusion, there, there's a, a, a great amount of danger with this wisdom. If follow your bliss, follow the thing that you love, follow your heart, if that becomes your sole aim and purpose in life, then what we're going to end up doing is we're going to reject every single word that suggests, hey, maybe, have you really thought about that? Have you really reconsidered the implications of what you're doing? What we will end up doing is rejecting any voice that says, hey, maybe you should be something different. Maybe what you've set your heart on here isn't really what's best for you. If we really follow this, what we'll ultimately end up in is loneliness. You see, what we often do is we do what Israel did. We, we chase after what we want. We follow our bliss on our terms. And we reject any messenger, any voice, any teacher, and certainly any antiquated scriptures that tell us otherwise. Any word that comes to us from the outside critiquing us, calling us to repentance, we shove to the side, we reject, we say no thank you. We persecute that word. We kill that word. We want nothing to do with that word. We certainly won't hear it. And the reality is, this is a pretty lonely path. Following our bliss and only our bliss is going to cut us off from every other person. Because if we reject every person that doesn't reinforce what we already want to hear about ourselves, we are destined for loneliness. If we only want to be affirmed, only want to be told, you are in the right, you do, you, you go for it. We're going to end up rejecting every single voice that says, hey, maybe you should stop. Maybe you should think about that. Maybe that choice isn't what's best for you. Maybe pursuing that is doing more harm than good. And not only that, the, the path of follow your bliss is radically different than what we see embodied by Stephen here. Because what we see here from Stephen is simply follow Jesus. Not follow your bliss, follow Jesus, even when it means suffering, even when it means rejection, even when it means his life may be taken from him. Follow Jesus. 
What he had set his heart on was solely following this Messiah who had been rejected. Following this man who had been killed. Following this one who had called him to himself and promised that rejection he underwent was for you. Why do something like that? Why follow a man who was rejected like that? Well, it's because Stephen encountered the cornerstone. Stephen encountered this stone that the builders rejected. Jesus continues in his parable. Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Stephen had encountered the cornerstone. Stephen had encountered this stone that no matter what will break you, it will crush you, it will break your life to pieces. Because one way or another, however we come to encounter Jesus, whether it's in faith or rejecting Him, it will crush us. If we fall on Him, it will break us. It will reorient everything in our lives around Him and His kingdom. You can land on that stone to be broken and rebuilt, or you can reject the stone and be crushed by it. But either way, it's going to break you. I can remember personally when I really feel like I fell on that stone. See, when I was in high school, I remember there were basically two things that I cared about. It was baseball and girls. Pretty typical teenage boy priorities. And then I remember when the gospel and Jesus became very, very real to me. And suddenly, baseball didn't really mean that much anymore. And, and girls, well, they, were, they were still there. But, but suddenly, once that became real to me, everything just sort of had to be oriented around that. It was just like there was, there was no other option. I remember seeing this in, in a friend of mine. When I met this friend, he was kind of loosely connected to the church. It had sort of fallen away a little bit, and, and he was sort of just kind of pursuing other things. He was very simply following his bliss. And so he'd moved to Denver to just be in the mountains, to, to enjoy the outdoors, to, to do all of the activities that he loved to do and, and live his life following his bliss, doing what he wanted to do and rejecting anyone or anything that said otherwise. And then he started hanging around this, this group of people that were regularly studying the scriptures I got reconnected to the church, reconnected to the faith that he had gone up, grown up in. 
And he ended up quitting his job, going on this this year-long trip, visiting 11 countries in 11 months, serving the poor, caring for orphans and widows and prostitutes. All of these people who had been rejected by society, he found himself immersed in, and he had fallen on that stone. It had broken him to pieces. And suddenly all of that stuff that his life was oriented around didn't matter anymore. Suddenly he started thinking, he's like, like, maybe I should actually sell everything I have and follow Jesus. Because when you encounter the cornerstone, when you encounter that stone, Jesus, who was rejected, it will break you. It will reorient everything in your life around him and his kingdom. But let me tell you something. He will put you back together better than you ever were before. So don't follow your bliss. Don't don't just follow the thing on your heart's desire. Don't follow your bliss and, and reject every voice that tells you otherwise. But quite simply, people of God, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus, follow this man who was rejected for you and promises you life with him in his kingdom. And there are going to be times when that way, when following this one who was rejected is going to feel lonely because it might mean some rejection for you. But the promise that you have is that when you are on your way, you will receive the same thing that Stephen received. Do you remember what happens as, as Stephen is stoned? So as he looks up and he sees the heavens open and he sees the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father. Is that in Stephen's moment of rejection, he finds that though he is alone, he is near to his Savior, Jesus. He finds that in his suffering, in his loneliness, his Savior draws near in that moment. When you are rejected, when you are rejected for following Jesus rather than your bliss, your Savior promises his nearness to you. He promises that he is with you in that suffering. He promises that he has given you a people, he has made you a part of his church that is with you, that is praying for you, that is encouraging you in the face of every rejection, every suffering, every pain you undergo for following him, he and his people are with you. So even in the loneliness of rejection, God's people are never alone. Follow Jesus. It will crush you. It will break your life to pieces and reorient it all around him and his kingdom. But follow Jesus because you know that the one who is rejected is the only one who can make humanity whole. Amen?